for listening to WPBM 103.5 FM, a broadcast service of the Mountain Area Information Network. You're listening to Veterans Voices, a show by veterans, about veterans, service members, and their families. I'm Kendra Phillips. I'm Ronald Hereda. And I'm James Lattimore. Today on the show, we will speak with local attorneys Frank Goldsmith and Bruce Elmore about rebellion, and Duke Professor of Literature Michael Hart will join us on the phone. But first, we have a news item compiled by Ronald Hereda. Not so much compiled. I'm just going to read directly off the uh, press release from the uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War from Hampstead, New York. One hour before the final presidential debate of the 2008 campaign, 14 members of the Iraq Veterans Against the War marched in formation to Hofstra University to present questions to the candidates. The questions were, one, the invasion and occupation of Iraq is illegal based on criteria in our own constitution as well as international law and the Geneva Convention. Senator Obama, is it not the right of service members to refuse deployment and participation in the occupation of Iraq? As president, will you support the rights of servicemen and women who refuse participation in that criminal war? And the second question would be, Senator McCain, we currently have thousands of veterans returning from combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, many of them with severe injuries. The rate of suicide attempts among veterans is at the shocking rate of up to 1,000 per month. Senator McCain, you have consistently voted against an increase in VA funding and other legislation that would take care of veterans. As president, will you be prepared to fully fund and staff the VA system, and how will you address your poor voting record on veterans' issues? Well, the IVAW had requested permission from debate moderator Bob Schaefer to ask these questions during the the debate, but received no response. The contingent of veterans in dress and combat uniforms attempted to enter the building when the debate was to be held in order to ask questions about poor veterans' health care and supporting war resistors of the uh, candidates, but were turned back by police. IVAW members at the front of the formation were immediately arrested, and others were pushed back into the crowd by police on horseback. Several members were injured, including former Army Sergeant Nick Morgan, who suffered a broken cheekbone when he was trampled by police horses before being arrested. Neither of the candidates was shown, uh, has shown real support for service members and veterans. We came here to try and have serious questions answered, questions that we as veterans of the Iraq War have a right to ask, but instead we were arrested. We will continue to ask these questions no matter who is elected. We believe that the time has come to end this war and bring our troops home, and we will be pushing for that no matter what happens in this election, said a former sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps who served three tours in Iraq and members of IVAW. Just a brief comment related to the topic of tonight's broadcast in ways that will become apparent when we get into it. I had some question in my mind about did McCain and Obama know that veterans were actually trying to get in or were they just turned back by the police and the candidates themselves never knew I mean I find it hard to believe that 
both of those men knew that veterans were trying to get in and present a petition to them, but I don't know. Now, I don't know whether the candidates knew. Evidently, the IVAW had sent a request to uh, the moderator, Bob Schaefer, uh, before the debate asking uh, that these questions be asked of the candidates. A total of 10 veterans were arrested during the action, including uh, Mathis Chereau, Army Sergeant, Christopher Goldsmith, Army Sergeant, Adam Kokesh, a Marine Sergeant, Mike Spinato, Geoff Millard, uh, Millard, Army Sergeants, Marissa Grogan, Marine Captain, Nathan Peld, Navy, from uh, 1999 to 2004, Mike Morgan, Army Sergeant, James Gilligan, uh, Marine Corps for six years, and Jose Vasquez, Army and Army Reserves from 1992 to 2007. Uh, for more details, you can go to www.ivaw.org and uh, get the latest on what's happening. Let me get started on our discussion tonight, and I'm going to do a little dramatization for a minute. I'm going to say, good evening, America. And I think some kind of solemn intonation like this is appropriate. In my mind, at least, this is a sort of historic broadcast because we're explicitly talking about the topic of rebellion. And I see it, perhaps uh, foolishly so, as the beginning of a new American revolution. So I hope I don't overdo it, but that's what it means to me. Thomas Jefferson wrote... I hold it that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing and is necessary in the political world as storms in the physical. God forbid, he said, we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion. There are two questions that are raised by this in my mind, at least, and that's the focus of the discussion, or at least the beginning starting uh, focus of it is does the Constitution prohibit doing what Jefferson called for? Uh, And secondly, does the Constitution prohibit discussing it? This is what we're prepared to do this evening, is to discuss it. And we're interested in knowing whether the Constitution protects us in doing that. No matter what we may say, we're discussing it. What a rebellion might aim at, the forms of rebellion, what its purpose is, its grievances, and so forth. Do we have the right to discuss it? And I think we're in grievous trouble in this country nowadays, and it's time that we at least put this on the table and begin talking about rebellion. We have some guests today that are eminently qualified to discuss this subject. We have Michael Hart, who's author of the highly acclaimed book Empire and author of Thomas Jefferson, The Declaration of Independence. He joins us today from Duke University. And as Kendra noted before, we have uh, Bruce Elmore and Frank Goldsmith here in the studio. They are prominent civil rights attorneys with a long history of activity in the ACLU. Michael, will you lead off and tell us a bit about Jefferson's views on rebellion? Yeah. Uh, I think it, uh, in in a way, the, the quote that you read earlier is a good is a good starting point. What he thought was necessary about rebellion was to reorient the Constitution, to reorient the, the uh, representative powers so that, they, so that they would be in line with each, with each generation's desires and political views. So that when he says every 20 years in the quotation that you read, that uh, he says that it would, be, it would be a shame if there was ever 20 years without, without a rebellion, 
what he means is that each generation should have its own constitution. This is another way of saying that, so that there should be both rebellion against the established government and a and a revision of the constitution in line with the with the current powers. So that we could say better about what the provisions of the constitution would be for this, and then maybe we we could say something about what it would mean today, and like what kind of rebellions even to Jefferson see in his own time and approve of, but that what would that mean in our terms today? But that's really a separate question, I think. Did Jefferson give any information about the nature of rebellion or not? Well, certainly, I mean, the one rebellion that was, that was very well, um, that was very much discussed and prominent uh, in the drafting of the Constitution was Shays Rebellion in Western Massachusetts, which was a debtor's rebellion, and in fact, in that sense, could be interesting for today. What they were were, were veterans, of the of the Revolutionary War, who were rebelling against the monetary, the economic policies of the government of Massachusetts. One of the things that was important to Jefferson is that he wasn't it wasn't clear to him that the that the rebels were right in in Shays' rebellion. But he thinks that it's important for the political system that there be rebellion, even when those are those who rebel are malinformed or not not completely right. That the fact of of the people questioning the government is what is so important about the process to him. It's a different kind of standard, I guess, uh, in his mind for what justifies the rebellion. Frank, can we can we engage in rebellion? I mean, what do you say? Well, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, if Jefferson held those views, and I certainly don't doubt that he did, according to what Professor Hart has told us, those views did not find their way into the Constitution itself. There are only a handful of references in the Constitution to the idea of rebellion or insurrection. There are uniformly negative in talking about it. For example, in Article 1, which addresses the powers to be given to Congress, the legislative powers, the reference is that Congress is to provide for the calling forth of militia to suppress insurrections and repel invasions. The habeas corpus article says it shall not be suspended except when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. We go on to the definition of treason as levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies or giving them aid or comfort. And there are other provisions too, even in the amendments to the Constitution, the post-Civil War amendments, Article 14, really disenfranchises anyone who has participated in rebellion unless they've been pardoned by Congress, and it disenfranchises them as well from running for office unless Congress removes their disability. The Constitution itself, as a document, clearly does not speak in favor of any need for recurrent revolution or rebellion. It's as if, once having achieved a rebellion successfully against the British, they decided that the status quo was a pretty good thing and needed to be preserved. Now, that's not the end of the question because, you know, there are certainly court pronouncements about the degree to which we can safely advocate the need for rebellion or revolution or other incendiary ideas opposing laws, and we can talk about those in a moment, but I thought I would start by just talking about what the text of the document itself says. Michael, did Jefferson do anything to try to get into the Constitution something akin to his notions about the importance of rebellion, or did he just give up on it? It was not that important. No, he was in France during the drafting the Western Massachusetts Shays Rebellion that Jefferson was responding positively to was the threat that the drafters referred to in the Federalist Papers that they thought the Constitution needed to respond to. It's in a way what he was responding favorably to, Hamilton and Madison were, were responding negatively to and tried to create in the Constitution. Like, I think that was a wonderful explanation of, of how the Constitution is, is created as a bulwark in a way against such internal rebellion. Michael, of course, this is Bruce, and yeah. the Constitution allows amendment, which 
the founders may have thought would alleviate the need for rebellion. But didn't Jefferson, during his period as vice president, almost engage in not rebellion, but when he left Washington and went to Monticello and drafted what became the Kentucky Resolves, which I think actually were intended to come to North Carolina and be introduced, but there was fear of interdiction by Federalist soldiers, in some ways engaging in at least acts not uh, favorable to the national government. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what these, you know, these discussions about founders could often, although I'm talking to lawyers, so you might have a different view on this actually than I do, but often with me, these discussions on founders seems to close off questions. But what, what's helpful for me is to recognize that the founders weren't in agreement about these things. And so in some ways, we've inherited certain views of the founders, and then other founders and their views have not been included. There's a tendency for us to feel that we've inherited something completely unified of one view. And in fact, there were a lot of alternatives within it. So both the, the views with regard to Shays' Rebellion and other things in Jefferson seem to me to help sort of open up what we think of as the U.S. tradition and not think of it as just one unified thing. I think that's a very important point, because I think what we keep hearing from justices like Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas is this call to hearken back to original intent as though there were a clearly identifiable body of thought that represents the original intent of the framers. And it's just simply not true. Uh, There was a diversity of opinion, and I think the framers intended the Constitution to be a living document that could uh, evolve over time, but that's clearly not the view of the most conservative justices. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I mean, I think that's useful and helps the discussion so that even when we're talking about the framers, it's something that's varied and has alternatives. But then there's also, of course, a different second argument, which is that there's why should our politics and our desires be locked in by that? I mean, that's another thing that notion of Jefferson's that seems useful to me, which is that this world is for the living and not to obey the wishes of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so that even, but but even if we were to say that that we need to obey the wishes of the dead, the intent of the framers, that even there we can recognize, like you say, a great plurality of views that require interpretation. Was that one in, one way of looking at Jefferson's notion about rebellion that the Constitution itself should be changed every generation or looked at so that you would have, in a sense, rebellion in the form of a constitutional process? Exactly right. Yeah, this is something, I mean, this is getting a little bit too scholarly about it, but it's an idea he takes from, from Condorcet and the, and the French Revolution of 1794, which is also saying this same thing to each generation its own constitution was the line in that document, mm-hmm. which does mean that, that um, it's up to each generation, it's up to the living to determine the laws by which we want to be governed or govern ourselves. Okay. Well, Frank and Bruce seem to have told us that we can't we can't actually go out and do rebellion without being arrested. I mean that seems to be fairly clear in the Constitution. So yeah. and we're not advocating anybody do that uh, right now. But it's still Yeah, let us make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still my, my wanna mother, know my whether we can told me to not to not advocate rebellion on, on live on live media. Well, well, good thing this is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> but can can we discuss it? Can we discuss it from all angles? I mean, are we do we have the right to do that given the Constitution with its limitations on what we can do? Can we sit around and talk about it? Oh, I, absolutely. I, I think there's no question about what we can do that. Congress did pass a law a long time ago in the form of a section of the United States Criminal Code. It's 18 United States Code uh, 2385, and it's an oft-quoted 
an oft-used section of the law that makes it a crime, makes it actually a 20-year felony for someone to willfully or knowingly, I'm going to read from it, advocate, abet, advise, or teach the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing or destroying the government of the United States or the government of any state, territory, district, or possession by force or violence or by the assassination of any officer of any such government. It goes on to talk about uh, prohibition of the teaching of those doctrines, to, to print, to publish, edit, circulate, sell, uh, display written or printed matter that advertise, that advises those things or advocates those things, or to conspire to do that or participate in a group. But the courts have pretty strictly limited the scope of that statute. That's a pretty frightening statute yeah. on its face. It really is. But what the courts have held in a series of decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court and from the uh, lower federal courts is that the elements of convicting someone under that statute include that there must be some incitement to immediate violence. It has to be an immediacy. It can't just be the abstract discussion of the desirability of revolution and the audience to which the advocacy is directed must itself be capable of carrying out that incitement to violence. So it is clear and present danger test that is written into our law by these judicial decisions. So I think we should take a lot of comfort in that, that the courts have not been eager to, uh, to deny our right to advocate these things. And there would be nothing wrong with us sitting around on this radio station and talking about the desirability of a revolution or an overthrow of the government, as long as we're not inciting that to be done immediately by force and violence, and we're not talking to an audience, and certainly I think the present company here is incapable of immediately carrying that out, but <laughs> whoever our voices may reach, uh, <laughs> I think the government would have to prove that they're capable of immediately carry, leaping to their feet, loading and locking and carrying out our instructions. Regarding... The Constitution, isn't it in the Constitution part of it that we are to throw away our government and replace it with a new one if it no longer represents us? And second part to that, with the recent basic repeal of the Posse Comitatus Act, we have um, whole army brigades stationed on U.S. soil. Does that mean we are in the middle of a rebellion right now? Well, actually, first of all, I'm not sure... If the Posse Comitatus Act has been repealed, that's news to me. Well, we have, you know, an army brigade stationed on U.S. soil for uh, protecting uh, against uprisings. Yeah. I I think there have been inroads, um, sort of erosions of the protection of the Posse Comitatus Act. Basically, for those who don't know, the Posse Comitatus Act is a really old law that forbids federal forces, United States military, from being used to carry out civilian laws. You know, distilled to its essence, that's what it talks about. Kendra, to answer the first part of the question, I don't think the Constitution itself uh, talks about the necessity for periodic revolution. There are words in the Declaration of Independence that do talk about that and uh, sort of give the idea that that's a revolutionary document, and it certainly expresses that idea. But the Constitution is actually, you know, the highest body of our law, along with treaties. I don't think it says anything really about encouraging revolution. I brought something that probably is what you had in mind, Kendra. It was a posting by Naomi Wolf on Alternet about those brigade that was employed as of October 1st in this country for crowd control, subduing unruly individuals. So it's part of the preparation for that. There may be good reason for it, may not be, but it's kind of ominous in, in a way. 
because it's uh, an active army brigade that's being poised for action against civilians and insurrection. Uh, and here's what she says. She says, Bush also led uh, change to the 19 1807 Insurrection Act to give him far broader powers in the event of a loosely defined insurrection and or many other conditions he has the power to identify. The Constitution allows the suspension of habeas corpus, which prevents us from being seized by the state and held without trial in the event of an insurrection. And because Bush has declared this war on terrorism to be a global war, that includes the United States, which kind of opens the door, at least if you're inclined to think like this, to using the military against civilians in this country because they are part of the war on terror. So that if we're speaking over the air and we say, okay, all you loyal listeners, pick up your pitchforks and torches and let's go storm the Capitol, that, that is specifically forbidden. But if we tell uh, people who disagree with what the government's doing, well, let's no longer fund the government, don't pay your taxes, that's not a violent rebellion. Is that okay? You actually could advocate the, the theory of having a violent rebellion would be good, in fact, be necessary, as long as there's no intent to actually have an act performed imminently uh, with a likelihood that the audience will actually perform it. So even in the first example, uh, if that is unlikely to be acted on, it might, might not be illegal, but it would be dangerous. If we here in the room were to plot to do a specific act against a specific governmental official or building, that clearly would be a crime. But just advocating the violent overthrow of the government in some academic or theoretical sense is not illegal. Right. Or, for example, in your example, Ron, um, calling for rebellion by refusing to pay taxes, you know, that would not, in my opinion, be illegal. Uh, you can call for people to violate laws. There was an interesting case back in 1970 involving Timothy Leary, I think, the advocate for LSD, who publicly advocated violating the nation's drug laws and was prosecuted for it. And his conduct was held constitutionally protected, if I'm not mistaken, in that case, because he wasn't advocating for people to do anything by force or violence. It was simply advocating disobedience of a law. Mm. One of the things that, that I wanted to talk about in probably won't be able to do it justice tonight but the more I think about first of all the days of the American Revolution it was a marvelous revolution I mean it was just uh, I had to be a scholar of that period and the accomplishments of those people were just amazing the, what they were able to pull off and the constitution that they fashioned afterwards and so what the, when we talk about rebellion now in my heart is a conservative rebellion. In other words, I think we need to go back to the vision of the country at the time of the revolution. So we're not talking about a socialist revolution. Now that some people might like a socialist revolution, but I think it's going back to the vision of freedom and democracy and small-scale government and so forth that prevailed at the time of the American Revolution. And this is where Thomas Jefferson and other people like that come in. I mean, these are revolutionary figures, but it's conservative. It's going back to the conservative roots of the country. And that's the exciting thing about talking about rebellion to me is getting rid of the power of lobbyists and money and corporations and military industrial complex and all of the things that seem to hold our government down, hold our democracy down and going back to 
the scale of things where people could actually participate in government and they felt a sense of propriety or property that they were meaningful, that their roles were meaningful in government. And we've lost some of that, and that's the thing that makes rebellion so exciting to me is not like going to some new, new nirvana or utopia, but going back to the noble traditions that were stood behind the founding of this country. I mean, it's really inspiring when you think mm-hmm. about all the sacrifices these people made, all the daring visions that they had, uh, attempts to invent a new nation uh, that had never been done before. I mean, the, the tradition in America at the time, and still is in the minds of some people, is a, a city on a hill. And that religious connotation of that has been some problems, I know, but the idea in the minds of the people at the time was that this was a special nation, and it should be, and it could be again. No, I think that's pretty interesting. It sounds like what you're talking about is less a, a violent overthrow of the government, though, than simply a recurrence to fundamental principles, to historical yeah. Yeah. principles. Whether they could practically be achieved, I mean, this country's a lot different from when we had 13 colonies and, and a relatively sparse population, but um, the ideas, though, are uh, ones that certainly are worth paying attention to, I think. So something like uh, having the Constitution subjected to a, a, a sunset law. So every mm-hmm. 20 years it comes up for review and changing it as opposed to pitchforks and torches in the street ty- type of rebellion. Well, to some of us, that's a little scary, too, because if you become too majoritarian, uh, you can have tyranny of the majority. And when you look at the polls, I'm not sure that the First Amendment would be passed by a majority of the citizens in the United States now, or the fourth or the fifth. And you hear that 40-some percent of people in America believe in creationism or young earth, 6,000 years old. I don't know where that renewal would always get us, but uh, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. Too. One of the beauties of our Constitution, and one of the things that's made it last as long as it has, compared to all other founding documents in all other countries of the world, is that it does set aside certain fundamental rights, as Bruce was explaining, such as the right of free speech and free expression and freedom of religion, the, the First Amendment rights and, and the other rights, as being insulated from uh, majority rule. And I think that is a very valuable thing. I, I certainly wouldn't want to see that uh, subjected to a sunset law or to a vote of the people on a recurring basis. I think we're very lucky that the framers put that in there and that it's as absolute as it is. You know, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or forbidding the free exercise thereof and so on. It's pretty absolute. But there is but a danger. it may not be hard to imagine if we ever had uh, a constitutional convention again or there were a sunset rule and, and the people actually got to decide. It would frighten me as to whether it would be in there or if it would be in there in the same form and with the same strength that it currently is. I mean, you have only to think of the recent efforts to have a flag-burning amendment adopted as a constitutional amendment. Clearly, that's contrary to what even our conservative Supreme Court, which people have to remember has been dominated by Republicans for decades now, that court has held flag-burning to be a protected exercise of free speech. I'm convinced if we had a constitutional convention now, we would have things like that, ideas like that would be enacted uh, creationism would be sanctioned. Uh, there would be some limitation on the establishment clause. It would be okay to have an established church, I'm afraid, if 
the great American majority were allowed to vote on those things, I really fear what might happen. But Frank, are you disagreeing with Jefferson then when he says that each generation should write its own constitution or have its? If Jefferson said that, I do disagree with that. I don't think each generation should rewrite the Constitution. I want my children and grandchildren to have the same protection about an establishment of religion and to enjoy the same right of free speech as I enjoyed and my grandfather enjoyed. And I think that's a continuing sacred right that we have to protect. And I really don't want to see that put to a popular vote. I want a nation where we can be in a room like this and discuss the possibility of revolution. And I worry that if we actually rewrote the Constitution, that a conversation of this nature might not be possible. Because the amendments, the Bill of Rights, were written when it was King George. But now it's us and our elected leaders, and many people think that they're antiquated and not suited for the 21st century. Certainly the current King George would uh, probably like to see things changed. (laughs) And the indictment uh, in the Declaration seems perfectly suited for him, doesn't it? That's right. (laughs) Well, it's been fun. Well, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Frank. Thank Thank both of you for being here. And we also want to thank Michael Hart, joining us by phone from Duke University. Thank you for listening to Veterans Voices, recorded here in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, at the studios of WPBM 103.5 LP your progressive voice of the mountains. If you have any questions or comments about our show or would like to be a guest, please email us at vetsvoices at yahoo.com. Veterans Voices can also be found in the archives at wpvm.org and click on archives and just scroll down to Veterans Voices. You can also get it streaming or in a podcast. Veterans Voices is compiled and produced by Kinder Phillips, Ronald Pareda, James Lattimore, and a varying cast of patriots. That ends our discussion for today. I'm Kinder Phillips. And I'm still Ronald Pareda. And I'm James Lattimore. And until we bring our brothers and sisters home, we are yours in peace. Peace. Peace.